rather than um, you having to listen to a five to ten minute sermon on giving every week. We, um, we feel like it's just a part of how we worship together and then about once a year we spend a little bit of time going deeper into it. So that's where we're going this morning, uh, looking at this issue of stewardship and tithing. And I'm picking up uh, from uh, my dad's message last week where he went into a little bit more depth around what it meant in the Old Testament. Where I'm going to take us this morning though is um, I'm going to talk to us about the mountaintop and the trolley cart. And um, I'll explain that as we go. That's Moses looking a bit shocked uh at at the fact that there's a trolley cart is it mel gibson is it maybe mel gibson's beard um if you've read the bible just a bit you'll know that high places uh are sort of symbolically rich in scripture um the top of mountains uh, throughout the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, it are places that are sort of like a picture of where we might be closer to God. Uh, often worship happens there. Um, you might read things like this. Um, this is um, from Isaiah chapter 55, as you can see. For my thoughts, this is God speaking. Uh, not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth... So my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Ancient cosmologies had this sense that God was kind of up there, or at least it was a rich metaphor for the fact that God was kind of over things. God was on a, another level. And um, we see this kind of woven in to particularly the Old Testament. So you might also think, uh, reference to that last picture of Moses, right? He goes up the mountain um, to meet with God in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 20 says, uh, as Moses has gone up to meet the Lord there, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses right up to the top. And so Moses goes. And you know the story? Moses receives the law from God uh, at the top of the mountains. He's been leading uh, this uh, emerging nation of Hebrew slaves through the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. And God graces them with a way of living with the Ten Commandments. Um, God gives Moses the law on the top of the mountain, those ten sort of laws to live by. But what happens when he comes down the mountain is a whole other thing. So some of you are going to finish this uh, sentence for me. What happens when Moses comes down the mountain? He encounters, yeah, the people doing some crazy stuff with the golden calf. I'm going to do something borderline uh, heretical here and reinterpret this story a little bit. No, the golden calf definitely uh, happened. It's really significant. But something else that I want to suggest that Moses encountered when he came down the mountain was the trolley cart. Um, for some of you, there might be some people uh, who are triggered by those two little words, trolley cart, because you're going back to first year of university or something like that. Uh, we would probably call that a tram, but in the context, if you were triggered by those two words, uh, that you first heard about it, uh, 
this thing that uh, is about to run over that ancient Hebrew um, is called a trolley cart. And um, I have had cause, too much cause, to think too much about trams or trolley carts in this regard because where I teach... um, There's all sorts of students that come through the classrooms. There's people doing business degrees and people doing education degrees and people doing social science degrees and then, of course, people doing uh, training in ministry and theology. And I used to... uh, I I taught for years one of the only two compulsory classes that every student had to do, whether they were doing business, education, social science, you name it. Not just the pastors who I'm normally with, the emerging pastors, the wannabe pastors. I had to teach everyone. I think, do you teach this class now, Chris? Ethics? No. Okay. They won't let Chris uh, teach ethics for good reason. Um, When you study ethics, which is basically how we think about right and wrong and... um, you know, how do we make moral decisions? Uh, how do we make decisions that are good, not bad? Uh, you encounter this sort of famous scenario called the trolley cart problem. Has anyone heard of the trolley cart problem? Yeah, a few? Yep. And, and you're all going like this. My experience is that the people who I've taught who are most troubled by the trolley cart problem are pastors. The, the teachers that I've taught, uh, the, the business students, the social scientists kind of get it. They might think it's a bit weird that they have to go and do 13 weeks of studying kind of the history of how we might think about what's right and what's wrong. Pastors really struggle with the trolley cart problem and they, they struggle with ethics. And I think it's because they like to live on the top of the mountain and the trolley cart problem is a problem that we encounter in the real world. I'm going to explain it to you in a second. Um, It'll have some resonance with something that Dad said last week. So the trolley cart problem, there's lots of variations of it, but basically it goes like this. You control the the sort of the track switch for a tram line and you see um, a trolley cart coming down the hill and you notice actually that there is out of your kind of, you can't yell to them, but there's a person on the track that is going to be crushed by the trolley cart that is coming down the track. Now, you have the power to switch the track. So the trolley cart goes off the track that's going to go and crush the, let's say it's a, I was going to say it's a child, it's a person, it's a human being, a person of value. Um, the, the tram could go and crush them, or you could switch it so it changes tracks, but what happens if you switch it is that track goes off a cliff. And so you have to make a decision. Do I let the tram continue on the track that it's supposed to be on and kill one person, or do I save that one person and probably kill the five people that are on it? And the trolley cart problem is used by philosophers and ethicists to kind of distill uh, basically what we would call an ethical dilemma. A situation where you have to choose between two uh, less than ideal situations. A situation where it feels like you can't make a right decision and you've got to choose the lesser of two evils. And, and basically there are, um, there are real world situations like this, whether we... Um, if you, there was situ- a famous situation um, in France during the Second World War where some villagers had to hide um, some Jews from the Nazis 
Uh, there's a situation a bit like this with one of Corrie Ten Boom's sisters in the hiding place. Uh, but a situation where you can have this sort of top of the mountain law, like thou shalt not kill, which is about preserving human life and the value of human life. But down at the bottom of the mountain, <laughs> things aren't always that straightforward. Do you get what I'm saying? Pastors hate that stuff. Training, I mean, you do a few rounds and you realise you're well and truly living in trolley cart land, but when you're training to be a pastor, I think you come in with a head full of steam. I'm always going to make the right decision. It's all straightforward. The real world just is not like that. And Old Testament uh, scholars have observed that there's something a little bit like this going on with the Old Testament Ten Commandments. There's a sense in which Moses receives these ten kind of ideal laws on the top of the mountain. You can get your head around them. They look great, superimposed on a picture of an eagle or something like that that you can put on the back of the toilet door. They give you a sense that you know how to do what's right in the world. Um, But actually, you read on past Exodus 20... And all of a sudden, you go from Ten Commandments, and there they are there. Didn't have time to put the picture of an eagle in the background, but then I didn't want you to think about being in the toilet either, so I just kept it black and white. You go from these ten top-of-the-mountain laws to 613 mitzvah. I bet you didn't know that that's what you go to. But when you start hitting the thou shalt do this and thou shalt do that and you should not cook a baby goat in its mother's milk and all that fun stuff, you know, you hit that soon enough, the story all of a sudden turns into just a bunch of really weird rules. Uh, What you've done there is you've hit the bottom of the mountain. The community of God has taken the spirit of those ten laws that God gives to Moses on the top of the mountain and they're going, well, that's great, thou shalt not kill, but what does that look like down here in the real world. And so in Judaism, they talk about the 613 mitzvot. I I couldn't fit them on the slide like that. It was going to be like 70 different slides and I thought I'd save you that. You 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 guys can think abstractly. You know what 613 looks like. But that is the 613 laws that are in the Torah, basically. The 613 bottom of the mountain laws, which kind of take the Ten Commandments and they make sense of them living in community, living in the world. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, you realise in Judaism it gets even more complicated because they don't just stop with those 613 mitzvot. There's whole other... And and I think we could probably learn a a little bit from this, so uh, I'll get to in in a moment why it it goes a little bit off track, uh, I think, in the eyes of Jesus... In Judaism, they're a lot more comfortable with the conversation. (laughs) I think they realised the bottom of the mountain thing, that particularly late modern, say, evangelical Christians, we struggle with. We we like to kind of imagine we can live on the top of the mountain all the time. So you get into books like the Talmud and the Tanakh, which is famous rabbis kind of going, okay, well, the 613 mitzvot, that was for the people when they were out in the desert, but... What about now that we're in exile? Or what about now that um, the wrong kind of people are running the temple and and so forth? 
it gets complex, is what I'm trying to say. What does that mean for a really important law from the Ten Commandments, like the Fourth Commandment? Spoke about this a few weeks ago, how the first three commandments kind of speak to the specialness of God. The fourth commandment is the first commandment that kind of gives us some kind of idea about what God's like. The first three commandments sort of say, this God's different. The fourth commandment begins to show us what this God who's different cares about. And he cares about, and it might seem strange to us, having a day off. Of course, it's more than that. But he cares about this concept of Sabbath, that there is a day of rest in the weekly cycle. The word Sabbath in Hebrew basically just means to cease or desist. It goes from Friday evening until Saturday evening. And all ordinary work on that day for the Jews stops. Uh, The scriptures relate the Old Testament, that God gave his people the Sabbath as an opportunity to serve him and as a reminder of two great truths which come through the whole of Scripture. The first is of creation. So the Sabbath is an opportunity to enjoy and give thanks for the goodness of life and the goodness of the world. And the other great truth that it points to is redemption because uh, it's a celebration of the things... uh, that come at the end, as it were. You've worked, and then you get to enjoy the fruit of your labour. And we see that pattern in the way that God creates the universe, don't we? To understand it with reference to Israel's story, to understand how those people at the bottom of the mountain who were already doing the wrong thing, not just with trolley cars, but with uh, false gods, to understand it in their context... It's really significant to keep in mind that a big part of it is about the fact that they were no longer slaves. So under uh, the the tyranny of uh, the Egyptian empire, they're brickmakers, they're slaves, and there's no end to their work. And so the Sabbath is actually a gift from God to them, to say, foundational to the way that I want you to live as my people is enjoyment of life is to come together and worship, to be a community, for, for work to cease, for you to be free. Correspondent to that is that it's about no longer being slaveholders as well. It's about everybody getting a chance to rest in God's new people. Even when you read the Old Testament, you see that it should apply to the strangers to the foreigners in the midst of Israel. God cares about it so much that people should be free, that there should be an end to labour, that there shouldn't be domination of one person over another, that there is um, an injunction even for the stranger in the midst of Israel. And as Israel begins to try and work out what the Sabbath means for them, Uh, We read this in scripture, at the bottom of the mountain, we see that it gets developed really to point strongly to that second cross, that there's not to be Pharaohs. You remember God's reticence to give Israel a king. That's part of what's going on there. But the other 
way that it expresses itself is in this notion of jubilee, right? So there is a Sabbath day, which is Shabbat, uh, Saturday we'd call it. We celebrate it on Sunday as Christians. But there is also a Sabbath year. So there's this cycle of seven years, seven times seven at the end of which is a year that, like the Lord's day, is declared the Lord's year. Let me just read a little bit to you um, from some commentary around what's going on with this jubilee, with this Lord's year, which is participating in the cycle of the seven days. When a series of uh, seventh years reach the perfection of seven sevens, so that's 49 years onto the 50th, the 50th year was heralded by a trumpet of jubilee and the whole additional year was set aside as belonging to the Lord. The first principle of the Jubilee is God's lordship over the whole earth, acknowledged by his people in their obedience to his command to set this year aside. Just as the Sabbath expressed his right to order life, giving it the shape of six days' work and one day's rest, and just as the seventh day linked in Deuteronomy 31 uh, expresses his right to command obedience of his people. I'll just uh, whip through that. When God uh, brought his people into the possession of the land, he gave them each an inheritance. And in each circumstance, a person uh, might end up needing to sell their land in whole or in part. But on the Jubilee year, that land must come back to him. The land cannot, according to the Hebrew law, be sold in perpetuity for it is God's land. And he says, you are but strangers and sojourners with me, in Leviticus 25. Um, So he's talking here about stateless people or refugees, people who've sought political asylum. In a word, God is saying to them, you're kind of like people who have no rights except for the right that mercy concedes. Such are the people of God that they must acknowledge themselves to be when the Jubilee comes around, that they recognise that they're just sojourners in the world and that any property that they have is actually a grace to them. So when a piece of real estate changes hands, the seller might congratulate himself on the astuteness with which he had solved his problem and the buyer might rejoice in their skilful acquisitiveness. But in the year of Jubilee, seller and buyer alike are compelled to confess a different truth that neither is the master, either of their own welfare or of the person and goods of another. Each has a master in heaven. So God builds into the nation that he calls a system which resets so that there can never be the domination of some over others. Uh, The prophet talks about each person being under their own vine in God's kingdom. This is what's going on with the Sabbath. This is the bottom of the mountain application of that uh, sort of deceptively simple fourth commandment that you shall uh, honour the Lord on the Sabbath. And essentially what this is about is it is about a society that is ordered around God and is ordered justly. The Sabbath is about a society that is ordered, ordered around God, and is just. There are 24 mentions in the mitzvah 
of Sabbath. Uh, so in just Leviticus, sorry, there's 24 mentions. There's more in the whole Torah. But it's a really significant part of God's law and the way that he wants his people to live. And you can go through and you can read about the Sabbath being a sign in Exodus 31. Uh, you can see there's a severe penalty, a penalty of death for working on the Sabbath. It's a, it's a covenant that's in perpetuity. It's to go on forever, according to Exodus 31. It goes on and on and on in detail. Uh, the Sabbath needs to be kept from evening to evening. The Sabbath is for the land and for the animals as well as for the people. They're supposed to have an opportunity to rest. Now, this intention that God's people would live in this just way, that they'd have a mindfulness of they're just really being stewards of the things that they're given, um, is all well and good. We do see by the time that Jesus comes uh, into the picture, though, uh, that things have developed even further. And so the Jewish tradition of interpretation ends up putting prohibition on things like walking further than a thousand cubits. So kind of walking to the end of the street, you can't do that. You can't drink outside your camp. You can't draw any water on a Sabbath. You can't wear perfume on, on the Sabbath. If you've ever um, been hugged by Pastor Graham on um, a Sunday morning, you know he's doing the wrong thing there. Uh, Old Spice. <laughs> That's actually my nickname for him, Old Spice. You can't open a jar that's sealed. Um, you can't assist an animal to give birth uh, or help them out of a pit uh, in, in, some of the, uh, in some of the laws. You, you can't have sex. You can't plough a field. You can't start a fire. You can't ride an animal. You can't ride in a boat. There goes the fishing trip. You can't kill anything. And so we might kind of understand by the time that Jesus comes around, that he has a series of what on the whole might seem like quite negative confrontations around the Sabbath. There's six famous ones. Uh, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in Mark. Uh, he heals a woman who was bent over in sickness that was caused by evil spirits. He, takes, uh, he goes on the front foot in Luke 14 and asks the Pharisees if it's right to heal on the Sabbath. And when they don't respond, he heals a sick, a sick man and he sort of turns the law back to them and says, um, you would rescue an animal. Why can't I make a whole person well? In John 5, he heals a sick man and tells him to carry his mat which was controversial because that constituted work, picking up your mat and carrying it. In John 7, um, he's still being sort of chased on this issue of healing this guy. And he points out that Jewish leaders circumcise babies on the eighth day because that's the law, even if it falls on the Sabbath. Uh, and then in John 9, he heals a blind man by making clay and putting it in a man's eyes. And that was also to make clay was against the law of the Pharisees of his time. So Jesus kind of seems to go at the Sabbath. But the consensus is that even with his challenge to the Sabbath, even with his confrontations to the way that the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment was being worked out on the ground in his time, he never actually questions the principle of a day of rest. Rather, 
um, the Erdman's Dictionary, which draws together a bunch of scholarship, says, rather the right use of the day is at the heart of these six controversies. Although Jesus broke with rabbinic traditions, they go on to say, he never annulled the observance of the Sabbath day. So what's going on there is Jesus living in the mess of life, very much like us living at the bottom of the mountain, is pointing to the top again. I don't know why he looks that way. He just does. I mean, not really, but in that picture he does. Jesus is about the intention or the spirit of the fourth commandment. And that's why he can say what he says famously in Mark 2. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Uh, an old professor of mine, uh, the great Pentecostal New Testament scholar, Rick Watts, used to say, it's about people-keeping. <laughs> Law-keeping is about people-keeping. The law is always about people-keeping. So what does that mean for something like tithing? Um, I could have picked a number of passages from the Old Testament about tithing. Uh, Leviticus 27, I think, sort of speaks fairly clearly to what it looks like. A tenth, a tithe, which means a tenth, as you heard last week, of everything from the land, where the grain or soil or fruit from the trees belongs to God. It is holy to the Lord. It's a symbol, as Dad mentioned last week, of the fact that actually it's all <laughs> grace. It's all from him. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod goes to God. And this is a lot like Sabbath. It's actually really connected if you understand your biblical theology well. Um, because tithing was also about a society that was ordered and ordered around God and was just. Uh, by the time Jesus is on the scene, uh, the rabbis were teaching uh, that that 10% should go three ways. And I, I think Dad intended to talk about this, but maybe didn't quite get there. It came out of a conversation I had with the rabbi uh, during the week. So some of it goes to the Levites, who were kind of the priestly class. Some of uh, uh, the next third went to uh, celebrations in Jerusalem and making sure that all worked. And then the second, the, the final third goes to essentially charity, to support the priests, to make sure that the whole sort of system works, that people can have a party basically when they get to Jerusalem and it's a place that they want to be. And then to supporting the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in the midst of Israel. Jesus does much the same thing in the way that he interacts with the law of the tithe to the law of the Sabbath. He always points it back, points it back to the top of the mountain, points it back to the spirit of the law. He points it back to the fact that the law and its keeping was always about people and their keeping, about God's love for people, about a people who live in such a way as that there won't be domination 
of one human over another. There won't be brick-making endlessly. There will be a people on this earth who enjoy creation as gift and hope for redemption. And so, in much the same way, as the Sabbath is about no longer being slaves and not becoming slave makers or slave holders, the tithe should be like that too. When we practice tithing as Christians, and you read through Jesus' interactions uh, around tithing and, and, and the epistles as well, they're all about doing so with joy, right? Not, not, not feeling forced to, but doing with gratitude, doing gratefully with grateful hearts. I think that speaks to the, the second image there. The church would never seek to be Pharaoh, <laughs> um, the church would understand that um, if we're struggling to put food on the table, God would want us to feed our children. But the church also is about the establishment of a just society where there is, one, people who can run the show, <laughs> who can keep it going, where there is a context for a common life and worship and celebration And then also where the widow, the orphan, the poor and stranger are looked after. We're going to have communion in a moment, but I just want to finish with this thought. Uh, Chris was up here plugging Sharilyn. This isn't a go buy the book afterwards because you can't that I'm aware of. But uh, it was a reminder to me again watching Sharilyn involved with this project of getting this book published. Um, and it was basically crowdsourced. So I think you guys understand that model. It's like when a group of people are passionate enough about a project, they sort of say, hey, we think we can make this happen. If you buy into it, you'll sort of get the first fruits of it. You'll get a copy of the book if you make a donation. Um, but you'll get to be a part of this thing which we believe is a good thing. You familiar with that? Even, even Chris Magnuson. Old man Magnuson knows what crowdfunding is. You know, the reality is that the church is a little bit like that. I might get uh, the team up. Thanks. The church is a little bit like that. The people who get the benefit (laughs) of the community are those who are invested in it. And after watching a life uh, in community over several decades, growing up in a pastor's family and now um, having the privilege of working for a church, it's just a truism that the people who invest the most get the most out of it. And actually, the 10% of money that we give is probably not the biggest part of that. Um, The people I've noticed who are most invested, it goes far beyond just finances. It's it's time. It's about so much more than that. What I I worry about, even as I struggle uh, with faithfulness and generosity, is that God in his mystery has chosen to work through the church. And I think it's only going to be at the end of time 
that we look back and realize how he made that work down here at the bottom of the mountain so often it feels like <laughs> it feels like a struggle you wonder how much good you do but as Sherilyn reminded us the, the scripture points to a day where he will reveal the ways that he made our broken attempts whole and there's an opportunity to be involved in a real way real community I think any of the pastors would get up here and say you know if if this church isn't that place for you if you struggle to be invested here find somewhere where you can be invested so that when you get to the end you can go I spent my life on that and it was a thing worth spending my life on the tithe represents that opportunity to us participate in that thing that God is doing in his plans and purposes.